This episode is brought to you by the Chronicle Protocol, a cost-efficient, transparent, and decentralized oracle. Chronicle has developed a next-generation oracle primitive called Scribe, which reduces oracle gas fees on L1s and L2s by over 60%. You'll hear more about Chronicle later in the show. The product you already know and love just got even better. If you are stressed about managing your on-chain portfolio across different wallets and different chains, I'm super excited to tell you about MetaMask Portfolio, which lets you manage all of your crypto across networks and wallets in one place. Do more in Web3 your way with the MetaMask Portfolio Manager. You will hear more about them later in the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another uh, roundup. Recording this Thursday afternoon. Santi, how we doing, man? Doing great. We miss you. Last week we had Casey on talk about the, you know, everything. I didn't know if I was going to get the the look back. I didn't. People, I mean, were joking. Uh, I, I was not going to get the invite <laughs> back, and it seemed kind of real. So, <laughs> a lot of people seem to like that. You know, I, for me, it was eye opening because I had you know no idea what goes on to these things, and so it was very eye opening. Really fascinating stuff that's transpired. Since, of course, we had like key witnesses, we're going to talk about a little bit of that. Uh, hopefully, we have Casey on, um, you know, maybe next week to give us a, 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 a more of an update. But I'm doing great. You know, I think, uh, look, a lot of stuff is going on in the world. Uh, and it's one of those things where like, you know, I always tell my, my parents, uh, I remember once I was like, look, if, if my emotional state was directly impacted by the price of crypto, I'd be a wreck. Like I would have already died of a heart attack. And so I think one of the things that I've learned in crypto is to kind of shield what happens in in the crypto world, in the volatility and everything. Like separating like your work environment from your house environment is critical. Um, and like that sometimes has been challenging for people, especially as you work from home. But nonetheless, like, yeah, look, I think one of the things that is important is just maintaining a level of optimism and just in the, cause I think like Twitter and the news inherently like skews negative and portraying a lot of the bad things. And I always like to remind myself and going back to like, there's this great like book um, and video as well, like YouTube uh, on Hans Rosling, who is a data scientist, German data scientist, I believe passed away, but he was like, he has a great book about just talking about quantitatively, like the world has become a better place. It is a better place today than it was like 100 years ago, like in terms of conflict, in terms of poverty, like across the board. But I think like because we're so connected 24-7-365 and these news and the algorithms just want to feed us stuff that skews like attention-seeking stuff and headline-seeking stuff. We see this a lot in crypto, but we're seeing it a lot in like geopolitics and whatnot. But, I, I you know, it's important to like zoom out and just like, you know, be grateful, but also just uh, keep your head cool in many ways. So... Yeah. So long-winded way of saying I'm doing okay. Doing great. You know, a lot, lot of things to talk about. So uh, yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. It's been a, it's been a shit show of a week. I, I was actually debating and I said, I wasn't sure if I wanted to bring up you know everything that's going on in Israel, but there's, there, there is one thing I wanted to call out, which is um, there's actually, I'm going to, I don't really have anything to say that's outside of, you know, whatever else is saying on Twitter and stuff, but there is actually just one resource I want to call out. That's very relevant to um, a lot of companies actually in crypto. So there's, there's a lot of Israeli founders in crypto. And I used to work at, I used before founding Blockworks, I worked uh, at an Israeli tech startup called, called SciSense. And uh, a lot of people who work at these um, 
uh, companies with oftentimes Israeli founders, uh, a lot of the employees are in the reserves and a lot of folks are getting called up to the reserves right now. So there's actually this resource doc that these uh, this couple, uh, Zoe and Michael Burian put together where if you, let's say there's a company, I think uh, Chaos Labs might be one of these companies, like mm-hmm. half their employees or a good chunk of their employees. Yeah. I, don't know, I don't know the exact numbers. Or I saw the CEO of uh, Digital Asset, Yuval, is going to Israel. Uh, if you have a lot of employees in the reserves, that means, you know, half your staff is gone and not working. So Zoe and Michael put together this resource request form where you can actually uh, put in, like, you know, I'm, I'm a data analyst, or I'm a salesperson, I'm willing to allocate five hours of my week to, to stepping in to basically like fill the, the, the time gap for these folks in the reserves. Yeah. So we'll put a link in the show notes to that. I think it's a, I know a lot of crypto companies who have been impacted, who have a lot of uh, employees mm-hmm. who are going to the reserves right now. So that's um, we're getting called up. So yeah, we'll put a link in the, in the show notes for uh, for kind of the volunteer talent form. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, needless to say, I was uh, I'm an investor in Chaos Labs. I'm an investor in number, like, at least I think six or seven of my portfolio companies are either directly based in Israel or half the team because the founders are from Israel. Um, it's a thriving ecosystem, cybersecurity wise. Like a lot of the intelligence, former intelligence unit, uh, like really a lot of talent is there. Uh, and so, uh, you know, obviously, uh, difficult times. So yeah, that, that's great research. Definitely uh, check it out yeah. if you guys are interested. Um, all right. A couple <laughs> things to talk about this week. We had SPF trial. I think we should start there. I actually texted Casey to see if she wanted to come on this week again, but no response She's still there. because <laughs> you remember you have to lock your phone up in the courthouse. So uh, that's right. N- no Casey. We'll, we'll try to do our best summary, but it's funny right after you guys mm-hmm. recorded, uh, we got a bunch of messages. The Empire podcast. This podcast was used as uh, as a evidence as a, as a document. Yeah, as ev- as evidence. They actually played this clip of uh, of our podcast when I think this was before you were a co-host when when we had Sam on the podcast. Right. As I was like, uh, oh, yeah, man, is that my living room? And uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, well, it's pretty interesting because Sam was doing a lot of the circuit, right? He was going around. I, I was a, he was a doing lot the circuit, of podcasts yeah. with him, and he was very critical of DeFi. And of course, I was on the other side and debating with him, mm-hmm. um, you know, DeFi. And and uh, so there's, uh, yeah, that's uh, it's pretty interesting. All right, so this so big big thing from this week was uh, Caroline Ellison Tuesday and and Wednesday. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll do I'll do a little bit of a. Uh, a recap of Tuesday, get into Wednesday, we can we can talk through some of this stuff. So Tuesday, some of the highlights, Ellison said that she didn't really feel qualified to be Alameda's co-CEO, but it was no biggie. She reported to SBF. Her salary and compensation came out. She was making 200K a year, but had this nice $20 million annual bonus that came, at least in 2021. Uh, she said that SBF really pushed her and the team to borrow as much money as they could, which led to roughly $10 billion in outstanding third-party loans by the uh, middle half of 2022. Uh, he also, SBF told Caroline that political donations were a really good use of their money um, and that relatively small amounts of money could be used for influence. So when we saw things like that, I think it's five or 10 million donated to now President Biden, this is, you know, it's interesting to hear him talking about, talking to Caroline about this stuff kind of early on. Uh, he We also learned that SBF believed that he had a 5% chance of becoming president. So, yeah, that kind he of wanted to buy Snapchat and also wanted to be president. I mean, the man wanted to do it all. Okay. So this was, uh, you mentioned Snapchat. So there's this list that was called things SBF, really just things Sam is freaking out about list. Here were the, here were the things that Sam was freaking out about. This is bulleted list. Hedging, bad PR in the next six months, 
user experience broken down into sub bullets, VIPs, API throughput, and click traders, front end being laggy. Another bullet, getting regulators to crack down on Binance, raising from MBS, getting capital from BlockFi, Alameda Modulo relationship. I don't know what Modulo is. Willie being happy. I don't know who Willie is. Uh, Insto stock onboarding, Reddit, buying Snap. I'm not sure if that's buying the stock, Snap, or buying no, the company. No, I think, I think he wanted to buy it. He wanted to buy out of Snap. Trading uh, JGBs. What is that? Japanese government bonds. Um, yeah, yeah. I think the 10 years. Bad mm-hmm. English language content and making bonus process better for next semester. So he's got some big things on this list here. Um, if we start yeah. to look at. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just say, uh, first and foremost, hedging. Well, Edging. Well, there's not yeah. a lot of that going on. Yeah. Um, raising money. So interesting MBS, here. There's that? nothing. There's nothing in this list that talks about security, and as we've learned, of course, like they just had terrible opsec. Like they just, and uh, I think there there's another tweet that we can look at in the show notes that talks about all the different hiccups that they had. They're uh, really just like negligent in terms of like running a secure infrastructure and managing keys that led to losses across like uh, they were uh, yield farming aggressively in a, like unvetted, unverified contract protocols. They had, they lost a ton of money there. They then um, also had money frozen uh, in China uh, in a Chinese exchange, which we'll talk about that later. They also had, um, um, I believe that they were held hostage by like this other DeFi protocol that they wanted, didn't want to release their funds. And then they, they lost a ton of funds there. Then of course, like there was during the whole um, insolvency, you know, process. I think the 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 famous FTX hacker, which is apparently now linked to Russia, believes like you know hacked a bunch of ETH. Right? It was like in the order of like a couple hundred, like hundred, two hundred million or so. So, anyways, a lot of losses in their operations, which is um, crazy, you know. So anyway. yeah, there was um. So the lead prosecutor, Danielle Sassoon, uh, prompted Ellison to kind of elaborate on one of those losses. And she ended up talking about this $800 million loss that FTX sustained in 2021 while trading BTMX, which I don't know what that is. Uh, And they said that the massive, she said the massive loss was due to a margin system malfunction. And the kicker is that when this happened, SBF told Alameda, uh, said that Alameda needed to take the loss because he didn't want it on FTX's balance sheet. So even back in 2021, he was kind of kicking these funds over. Um, other thing uh, that I'm trying to kind of figure out and what, like, what, trying to tra- trace this money, and I know some folks at BlockWorks are looking into this, is there's this whole thing around Thai sex workers and bribes of Chinese mm-hmm. government officials. Um, so if you actually look at what – so it's, it sounds like SBF sent 100 million – between 100 to 150 million to different crypto addresses that they believe to be tied to Chinese officials – with the hopes of gaining uh, access to about a billion in Alameda funds that were frozen by Chinese government officials as part of this money laundering investigation. And the money was frozen on Huobi and I think OKX. So one of my questions becomes, is there still a billion of customer funds on OKX and Huobi? Are those still there? I'm I'm not entirely sure. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure either. Yeah. Um, yeah, apparently there was an employee, um, at FTX that had, her dad was a Chinese government official 
And she warned them against not doing this. And then she got promptly fired. And they still went ahead and kind of, you know, tried to bribe them and send this money uh, to various officials. I don't actually know the, you know, the outcome of this. But of course, it's pretty damning in terms of not only is this the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, I believe, that is in violation of, and the implications are, you know, people that are within, in, in this signal chat are all implicated. Caroline, Sam, Ryan, uh, Salame, and also Trabuco was on that thread. And so now right. he is implicated and everyone is wondering, well, where the hell is Trabuco? <laughs> and that's like the, that's the biggest question in all of this is like, where is this guy? And at what point is he going to show up? Um, yeah. And I got to think he's under witness protection or whatnot, but we haven't heard at all from him. And, and he is obviously a big player in all of this. Yeah. There was one more key thing that Caroline talked about, which is that at one point in the summer of 2022, uh, the Genesis requested a return of 500 million, right? Due to starting, like they started to get really concerned. And uh, let me just read, I'll read the quote from the, from the, from the testimony. Ellison says, Genesis was getting recalls from retail lending platforms. So they asked us for 500 million. Uh, other side says, what did the def- defendant tell you about his call with Matt Balanswag of Genesis? El- Ellison says that Genesis might go under, so we should send it to them. Sassoon says, the prosecutor says, when you sent this balance sheet to Genesis, did you consider it to be dishonest? Ellison said yes. So this is interesting. I don't know. There were a lot of people asking FTX back for money. And mm-hmm. they said no to a lot of people, but they said yes to Genesis. So it makes me wonder kind of like why why that happened. Yeah. Uh, importantly, I think uh, Sam made a statement in there that said he wanted to prioritize repaying Genesis and holding off on repaying uh, BlockFi. We'll have to understand why that was and what his thinking was around there. Um, that'll be good to know. And the other thing is, um, you know, all of the, as as I'm reading all of this, I got a like I was thinking about that scene. There's a great documentary of uh, Madoff on Netflix. Um, There was this particular guy that was a longtime investor in Madoff's funds that knew that Madoff was running a Ponzi. And instead of sounding the alarm, he tried to extort Madoff and wanted to get his money out before others. And so he went to Madoff and said, hey, I'll call you out. I'll write you out. Or unless you like just give me back my money and and, all the returns that are on paper. And then that came out during the whole investigation afterwards. And so in a similar manner, like I got to think like, obviously CZ really tripped all of this out because he at some point real, because, you know, FTX was sending a bunch of money to Alameda. Alameda was then like doing this ARB across exchanges, right? If there's a price delta between FTX and Binance, it would send. So they were like interacting with a lot of exchanges and counterparties, you know, maybe not a single counterparty was able to understand the entire flow of their operations. But I think from uh, there was a lot of people that were looking on chain at these wallets. I think at some point ZZ realized what was going on and then he sold all his FTT. But it also raises the question like, at what point did these counterparties, Genesis, BlockFi, um, Gemini, kind of knew that they were in a very precarious spot of course, they were getting fed these spreadsheets, uh, which is part of the testimony of Caroline. These like fabricated spreadsheets um, that just had erroneous numbers on them, omitted numbers um, of loans, of a number like of, of positions and whatnot. And so, at what point 
do you just not like, do you look at that and at what point did they realize that was the case? So, yeah, I mean, of course, this is something that I've, if I'm the prosecutor, I would really want to go deep on just understanding all the other different counterparties and their relationship. Um, maybe to salvage themselves, they didn't want to sound the alarm and they wanted to get the capital back. Um, but when you have this priority, if you know you're insolvent and you prioritize one creditor over another, then then you have to peel all that back, I think. Because in the Madoff case, you remind, Yana, you know this better probably than I do, but a lot of the people that got money ahead of others, like this priority, they had to give it back, um, right? So anyways, just, exactly. just, just very interesting. All, uh, I mean, is Caroline over? I, I think she's going to, maybe there's another day or two, of, but she's been very revealing. Every, I mean, we, we're just covering like, uh, probably scratching the surface. I mean, there's a ton of stuff. There's people that have done great threads um, documenting all the kind of the, the testimony, but just some really interesting um, you know, tidbits here and there. All right, let's move on to another piece of news. So a uh, big uh, BlackRock Barclays trade on uh, JP, JP Morgan's uh, blockchain system that they've kind of set mm -hmm. up here. Um, if you guys remember the episode we did with uh, Tyron, um, he started talking about kind of hinting that something big was coming. And I think this might have been it. So this was the first ever, the way I understand it is this is the first use of tokenized. So basically BlackRock tokenized money market fund shares and sent those as collateral to Barclays. and. Um, uh, basically to be used as derivatives margin. So they posted this tokenized MMF collateral for a live trade using the kind of new Onyx digital assets dApp uh, called TCN. And so so Tyron sent this to me. He's like, this is actually a really good use of blockchain. Uh, like more people should talk about this. The kicker here is that something like this, to, uh, using using this kind of collateral to post would usually take a, a, at least a day. It's one, it's, you know, there's T, T plus one basically for the, for this collateral to post. This collateral in this case took one second to post. So uh, as, as Tyron put it, he said, we believe that ultra fast collateral will, will bring huge value to what is a $25 trillion collateral industry. So, oh, yeah. 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 I mean, people complain on chain, right? When there's like high gas that you need to refill your collateral. And I mean, look, folks, I mean, yeah, of course, like. The problem is on chain, you can get liquidated without notice. Like if you don't meet, the, uh, you know, that if your health factor drops below one and you, and you don't want to pay the super high gas fees, like, as we've seen in these like high vol environments, you get liquidated, right? But in the real world, like you still need to meet margin calls and the settlement is just like super antiquated, like T plus, as you said, one or two. And just having inst the ability to instantaneously meet your margin call by tokenizing the this collateral uh, very liquid collateral and money market fund is hugely valuable. Um, yeah. yeah, both from like a, we we I mean at one point and I think in the episode you know we we wanted to dive deeper and we're going to have to have him on again talking about this is really quantifying the cost saves on just the record keeping of like just doing instantaneous like atomic settlement. I got to think that that alone involves a, a pretty significant. Um, cost save on the operation side. People might be listening saying, okay, cool, you know, a test. What's next? Like how big can this get? How real is it going to be? Um, any in like any sense of like what's next here? Like um, you know, yeah. Is this gonna now be the norm? Can everyone adopt this? Is Goldman and other investment banks that are competitors to JP Morgan wanna play ball? Um 
in Onyx or uh, does this move to Ethereum? I, you know, yeah, I'm just kind of curious if you have an opinion on that. So I think the I think the kicker here is that it was BlackRock. That's that's what I would say is the is the most important part of this. Uh, without saying too much, I do. So BlackRock has their Bitcoin ETF, right? That that's BlackRock's now in the game, basically. Um, and I think this is the first. I would call there's kind of three elements when I think of a bank getting into crypto. There's like three elements. There's uh, do you let your private do you let your private clients hold Bitcoin? Do you, if you're a private client of Goldman or JP Morgan or someone like that, are you able to hold, are you able to hold uh, crypto and Bitcoin and ETH and things like that? Second is like, uh, do you partake in the infrastructure play basically, which is what JP Morgan's leading on here. The third one is, um, do you, do you trade, like, do you trade in it? And do you, do you, do you make markets and things like that? And right now, so a lot of people used to do the third one right now. Goldman is the only bulge bracket that is making markets in crypto. So Goldman's the only one who's doing that. Everyone else backed out. JP Morgan's kind of leading the way on the on the infrastructure side of things. And a lot of them still are not allowing their customers to hold crypto. Like if you're a private client of uh, of JP Morgan, you you can't you can't hold your Bitcoin with them yet, I would say. So what else we got? Layoffs? Well, we have. Uh, I don't really want to talk about layoffs. You had war. You had war. I feel like a lot of this stuff is depressing. You had layoffs at a couple of companies. I mean, look, well, got- we'll talk about it because you know, uh, it, putting emotions aside. I mean, we are seeing a bunch of layoffs at Yuga Labs, Ledger, Chain Analysis. Um, what's the other one that I'm blanking on here? Uh, Web Three Foundation. Polkadot. Polkadot. Yeah, they they uh, fired a bunch of their staff. Um, yeah, look, I mean, I think it's one of those things where people, you know, are coming to the realization that, uh, they need to prioritize runway and surviving. And it's a tough fundraising environment out there. I do think that, um, you know, the good companies are still getting access to capital. It's very concentrated, very selective. These rounds are still happening, but, um, but yeah, certainly it's, it's tough, right? I mean, I, what is still very shocking to me is how some teams were just able to blow through 15, 30 million in one year, even more. Mm-hmm. My guys, like yeah. they just threw body problem, you know, bodies of problems. And the reality is like a lot of teams come to me and say, Hey, we're going to raise another five, 10 million because we want to hire a uh, head of marketing. And be, I'm like, are you there? Like, why are you going <laughs> to like, you don't even have a product. Like, why don't you just double down on the product? So I think the, the, Here's my rubric. The really good teams are very technical and the and it's really lean teams. Founders are very competent and technical. And I was just uh right before this podcast, I was late because uh I just got a test, uh, a demo from one of the teams that I was an investor in and they've just been incredibly lean. They're very technical and they don't have it's just a very skeleton organization like just bare bones like just building the product. And they've identified a niche in the market and they're going after it. And it's, you know, those are the teams that are getting funded. And they, like, on the other hand, there's just the majority, unfortunately, are those teams that just went out and said, I guess we have to bloat an organization because everyone needs to have a chief of staff and a head of marketing and a, hmm. go to all these conferences. I'm like, well, wait on, like, hold on here, <laughs> build a product, you know, find product market fit. So, um, yeah, and then the other, of course, is there's uh, probably eighty percent of the companies that raise money just should just uh, you know uh, 
you know, return it because they're just milking it at this point. Yeah. So I think that what's happening with some of these layoffs is uh, there are a lot of the later stage companies, right? Chainalysis, Ledger, Yuga Labs, they need big capital. They're raising maybe Series B, Series C, Series D. And what's happening is they're going to raise capital and the VCs are saying, look, I actually like your company, but your burn is too high. So you need to first cut your burn, then we'll allocate. So I think that's where a lot of, I think that's almost the why behind a lot of these layoffs is. Thank you, Mitro. Yeah. And it's funny. I was looking at DeFi Llama's like uh, raises tracker shows you like how much venture money has gone into the space every month. The numbers are way off. The number, the numbers are just wrong. And I think the reason for that is because uh, a lot of companies are not announcing their raises right now. So if you were, if you, if you raised at a, you know, 1.5 a year and a half ago, now you need to raise again. You're raising it like a 500. Now you're down 66%. There's no way you're announcing a big down round. So you try to, you do, you do everything in your power to keep that, that fundraise possible, uh, quiet. This episode is brought to you by Chronicle Protocol, the best on-chain source for cost-efficient, verifiable data. For anyone who listens to Empire a lot, you know that we talk a lot about MakerDAO. Well, Chronicle Protocol is this novel Oracle solution that has exclusively secured over 10 billion in assets for Maker and its ecosystem since 2017. And for the first time ever, super excited to share here that Chronicle's Oracle service is now publicly available for anyone to use. Compared to using other Oracle services, Chronicle offers a 60% reduction in gas fees. They have an unparalleled level of transparency at Chronicle. They offer a dashboard that allows anyone to track the genesis and trajectory of the data it provides, marking this milestone in on-chain data availability. Chronicle is endorsed by a network of the most revered validators, including Etherscan, Infura, Gitcoin, DYDX, and MakerDAO. It is time for a paradigm shift in Oracle development, a future where data is verifiable, operational costs are contained, and the possibilities are immense. You can learn more about Chronicle at chroniclelabs.org. That is chroniclelabs.org. The product you already know and love and have probably used for years, MetaMask just got even better. I want to tell you about MetaMask Portfolio. If you're like Santi and me, managing your crypto assets across a bunch of different wallets and networks can be overwhelming and it can be complicated. That's why I'm excited that MetaMask Portfolio has partnered with Empire. It's really easy to get started. Just connect your MetaMask wallet to get a bird's eye view of all your coins, tokens, and NFTs in one place. You can easily buy, sell, swap, bridge, and stake your crypto assets at competitive rates all within the MetaMask app from a vetted list of providers. The MetaMask portfolio lets you do more your way. Hit the link in the description of today's episode to get started. Um, let's let's take this into the USDR stablecoin. So there's the, there's something called a real USD, which is USDR. It's a stablecoin. It depegged this week. Price crashed by like 50%. Uh, it is a stablecoin that is backed by real estate ac- uh, assets, and it depegged. Price went down fifty percent. It was issued by this company uh, or protocol called Tangible DAO. Um, they ha- it was small; it was a market cap of like fifty million before the price started spiraling. The asset was supposed to be, as they put it, I went to their website, new type of money backed by real estate yields eight to fifteen percent uh, a year, and it looks like they lost their peg due to this big rush of redemptions. But I mean, it was fairly small: forty-five million, fifty million market cap. Uh, I'm I'm honestly surprised stables like this still are still around. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, guys, again, 
the biggest problem here is there's a mismatch of assets and liabilities. Real estate, not very liquid. It, uh, so yeah, it, it, it listed 62,000 62, of the US. Uh, I was looking at the collateral. There was 62 or 63,000 USDR as the collateral. So they were collateralizing the stable with their own stable. So you start to see the problem here. Look, uh, th- this works in the real world because you believe in the in the faith. Uh, I mean, if you look at it, fiat currencies, as you, you believe in faith of the U.S. government or whatever respective government, it doesn't work on chain, folks. Like, you know, you can't fabricate trust on chain out of thin air. You need to have real collateral um, backed by some form of demand. Uh, you could think demand in block space is real. There's people that want to, there's competition there, um, whether you believe it to to be valuable or not, that's your particular opinion, but the market says it's valuable at any given point in time. So it's backed by something. There's compute in a proof of work system, uh, proof of stake. And then, you know, um, there is valuable currency there, but just using your own coin as collateral, folks, please don't do it. It doesn't work. It will fail. Thank you. <laughs> that's all I have to say. <laughs> People should go to the Stablecoin podcast we just recorded last week with uh, Nick uh, and uh, this other gentleman. Uh, what is it? Um, Martin? I'm blanking on the name. Uh, with Martin. Anyways. Yeah, with Martin. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's even though it's crazy that you just said like 40 million is not a lot, but like I, I still think that's a lot. Like we as an industry, I think it's not so much – the quantum, although some of these hacks are and, and losses are pretty, you know, real, it's more so like just from a like, why do we keep doing this? Um, yeah, you know, we, we ought to move on and just like. Uh, so, anyways, it's it's a bit uh, it's a bit discouraging, I think. Yeah. Just to see. These I do think that there are more stable coins coming. I do think we'll see a lot more stable yeah, coins yeah. coming in twenty twenty four, and I think a lot of people are going to make the mistake of calling them. Saying, "Hey, look, this is just like you know Terra Luna, basically," but they will be. Better. Yeah, look, in that episode, I asked Nick, uh, "Hey, if you were to wave a wand, how would you design a better stablecoin?" You know what I mean? Like, um, algorithmics, I think, are out off the table. I think you know you could argue all you want, but I think time and time again, and even in the in the um, blockchain capital episode, we talk about these things that just don't work, um, and so. Yeah, I, I think I do agree with you. The design space and the category itself, stablecoins, is going to be huge. I think there is an opportunity to build better versions of existing stablecoins or complementary versions of existing stablecoins just from a diversity standpoint, resiliency standpoint. Like, why couldn't there be another consortium um, backed by major banks or whatever that do a similar USDC version? Like, PayPal is doing it. Well, you know, PAX is whitelist. There are stablecoin solutions. Like, I think we could credibly see multiple flavors of uh, a fully backed stablecoin. Like whether you like that or not, because it's sen- not censorship resistant, then well, you might have other options, but you're taking different kind of risks, right? So, yeah, um, yeah, but but I think it's important to be vigilant around certain experiments uh, and faulty kind of economic or financial assumptions of mechanisms that just don't really work on chain. Last but not least, man, Scroll. Scroll launched mainnet this week. Uh, mm-hmm. Seemed like kind of a soft launch. I don't know if the if, if the news like leaked or it, was, it, 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 it they didn't seem like a around it on Twitter. Yeah, I think I think uh, 
they were sensitive around the, everything that's going on, obviously in the world. Um, right. So I think, but but yeah, they they did kind of launch mainnet of sorts, uh, which is encouraging. You know, this is a team that we were, I think, one of the first, if not the first, to have them on the pod. I mean, of course, I'm I'm a seed investor there, um, and uh, and I know Sandy and the rest of the team there. So, but we had them on very very early on. People should go and listen to that podcast. But to me, it's really. Um, to be fair, like it wasn't as obvious back then for me, and I think it, I, I will give credit to uh, Folius, Jason, who's a good friend, and I invested in his fund, and he was one who was based out there in China. And so, my thesis was, I'm not going to be the one to be able to identify these teams. Clearly, there is talent statistically; like there ought to be really high, really, really quality teams uh, um, that are going to build and continue to build out there. Um, and, and that was, he brought that deal to me. And so that was, uh, yeah, I'll give him credit for that. I mean, obviously, you know, a long way to go still, I think CKBMs are, are very, uh, you know, uh, ambitious proposition and, but, and, and really encouraging, but works. And I, I think, uh, these guys are, you know, doing, uh, um, really good work. So, uh, yeah, go listen to the podcast, uh, that we recorded with, um, uh, Sandy, uh, way back. I think it was over a year ago, right? Yeah early cool man yeah. we can keep it light light this week quick 30 minute app anything yeah, else well, that's, uh, that's on your mind no i'm just thinking of well as we always like to wrap episodes of things you're reading or watching i have i have recommendations for both reading and watching because you know all right hit me i don't want to ask you first uh i'm watching david beckham documentary on oh, netflix gosh. why are you still my thing was that yours? No, I was gonna. I, I did watch Dude. it all. I mean, t- David Beckham was like a. It was a hero of mine. I would wake up uh, early, early Saturday and Sundays, like six a.m. to watch English Premier League games, specifically Man U. Like, oh god, like that team, like amazing. Uh, I I have fond memories. But to be fair, I didn't know a lot of the things in the documentary were like eye opening to me. The fact that he was like vilified when he like got a, um, a red card during a World Cup match, I think that I, I did not know the level of he got a lot, a lot of shit from, you know, and months and months at a time. And then like the English fans were just had no mercy, but um, fascinating, fascinating. Um, I love these type of documentaries. Uh, really, really yeah. good. Uh that so, was mine as well. So, I, so, so I saw the Tiger one maybe a year and a half ago, then Serena and Venus semi-recently, okay. and then David Beckham. I'm convinced now to have an athlete at this level, you need a parent who is an absolute nut. Like that was, <laughs> that's been one of my takeaways from this is like, yeah, you, you think uh, David, like, like David's dad was, was like, David's dad is a nut. nut. David, <laughs> he goes, he goes, the, the interviewer goes, would you, um, would you punch your dad in the face? If you had the opportunity and the, and David goes, no, cause he'd punch me back in the face. Hard. <laughs> like he, that was all he thought about it. He didn't have friends as a kid. Like he was just soccer. So, and that got drilled and his dad, his dad was just a man. You guy and was like, my kid will play for man. You. So I think, yeah. he, I, I didn't think it was portrayed as like that much of a obsessive parent. I mean, maybe it's not was, like right? Tiger's parents or Serena and Venus's dad, I think there's but- like levels of that, right? Like uh, I've heard Max Verstappen, the Formula One driver who just won the championship again this year, three three times in a row. Um, 
that his dad, also a Formula One driver, not as successful, was incredibly, incredibly harsh. There's a story huh. where he left him behind in a gas station after a race because he didn't come first as a like uh, a 12 year old or whatever. I mean, you got to think that that traumatized the kid up to this day. Oh, like, yeah. He's probably thinking every race, if it doesn't win, you know, that, the, you know, that anyways, um, I didn't think it was that. I mean, of course the dad is passionate as a lot of Brits are around, around football. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was certainly, uh, yeah. So what are you reading? Uh, there's this great book. Uh, I have it open here in my Kindle. It's by Rick Rubin called The Creative Act. Ah, yeah, I've heard of that. Rick Rubin, The Creative Act, A Way of Being. And it's sort of, I think he's a, he's an artist and he, it's sort of like a contemporary version of Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. It's just very short, almost like haiku-like, poem-like, but it just uh, really, uh, really refreshing, actually. Yeah. Yeah, he's a legend. He's worked with all the greats. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Big, big music. I don't producer. know much about him, but yeah, he's this music producer who's basically figured out a way to like get the best out of all the the you know the Kanyes and the Biebers of the world. So that's his claim to fame. I have a fat. I have a fun fact for you. ACT scores just hit their lowest level in 32 years, and I think we're just starting to. If you see, if you look at the chart of ACT scores, it's just like it's kind of flat or up wow. for like you know last 40 years, and then it just. Falls off a cliff last couple of what years. And now, I like think 20, the top score is what, 30? If I remember. Uh, his top score is 36. 36, um, yeah. The average used to be, it was 20, 20 and a half, it looks like, in 1990. Then went up to 21 in 2000. Like then in 2010, it went up to 21 and a half. Now it's down to 19 and a half. Uh, Good Lord. Yeah. So <laughs> I think you're starting to see the ramifications of covid on students which is a real bummer covid plus uh, everyone being addicted to tiktok i mean that's just in the u.s right because uh i think it's more of a reflection the on, there's some really interesting studies around the u.s actually ranks very very low and has been for a while on these like standardized tests for even younger kids at the elementary level and middle school uh, like primary level, they, they, they score very poorly. I think the lowest among uh, developed countries, OECD countries, the highest are like, I think Finland and Sweden. I think Finland is number one. There's a fascinating documentary by Michael Moore that, that uh, I think it's Word Invade Next, um, that he goes deep into this and, and goes and, and goes to these like schools in, in Scandinavia to understand how v- radically different their system is. It begs the question, like the U.S., and again, I don't want to go again in this topic, but like across healthcare, if you plot it, number of expenditures, but outcomes are terrible. Like on the research side, on the innovation side, fantastic. Bar none, number one in the world. Maybe Israel, you know, per capita. But but like the U.S. is still leading in terms of innovation. But in terms of outcomes, the amount of expenditure per life, uh, per like per capita and, and the life expectancy has just gone down. In the U.S., mm. that's not true for other countries. Um, this is a huge outlier in a negative way in education, and so it, it's uh, clearly it's like it's not a spend uh, question. It's really just rethinking. Hey, systemically, clearly something's going wrong here. Um, yeah. 
so yeah, and, and then of course you see, uh, you know, I'm not surprised actually. ACT scores gone down. Like, I mean, it's kind of a joke. These standard, like these, like the SAT and the ACT is basically uh, another great documentary about like uh, these parents that like. There's this guy talk about fraudsters like SPF, like this guy that goes around and like promises kids that they're gonna, you know, uh, they can pay their way into these like top schools. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's uh, my I went to Harvard Summer School when I was like in middle school or uh, high school, I guess. And one of the biggest realizations for me was like, obviously you go to like, it's Harvard, right? It's like, oh my God, like, right. Uh, and then you're like, it was just like really interesting for me because, and then you go to like, it, I think it's, if you have the chance, it is very um, kind of like eye-opening to put yourself in the most competitive of environments. Now I'm not saying Harvard is the most competitive, but like, like you, you can think it's, it's elite, right? It's like in your mind, it's like, if you go to like, JP Morgan or like Wall Street. Well, the finance environment, if you want to go to the most competitive, well, go to New York, right? I think it's just like, it's just a different level and category. And I think it's right. really nice if you have the opportunity to put yourself in, like your feet in the fire and say, okay, what is the most competitive environment? And it can be daunting. Like there's all these stories, like there's a great book of um, um, Malcolm Gladwell of what the dog saw, of like how these students, like uh, they're at the top of their class in, in high school and they go to Harvard or like uh, an Ivy League and then they're the worst, right? Because you put the, and so like, and, you know, small fish in a, in a big pond or a big fish in a small pond, what, what would you prefer? What I'm trying to say is, like, I think I would always, like, want to be, want to at least understand what is the most competitive environment look like to then say, okay, at least I know what it looks like. But some people deprive themselves of even, like, going there. Uh, and then, of course, the last thing I'll say is you hear stories of uh, Harvard uh, student associations, which are just uh, no accountability and just say, oh, we couldn't read a statement. I'm like, well, Yeah. What's your ACT score? I don't care. I don't care. It was thirty six. There's no accountability and ownership. Like, what are you teaching these kids? So the last last movie I'll recommend. I'm cheating here. Just like, <laughs> bonus content. Bonus content. The last, probably the best scene of all time. Scent of a woman. Al Pacino, when he's uh, defending Charlie. Uh, fantastic, fantastic scene. People should go watch that movie because it's so relevant to what I think is happening in today's society. We're just, what are we valuing? What are we teaching our kids? Like what values? I think that movie is, uh, just hits a soft spot. To me, it's just one of the best movies of all time. So anyways, guys, you came here for crypto and we're giving you like half, half non-crypto content. <laughs> Don't kill us. Like, we'll are we getting later. back to crypto, crypto conversation? No, all right. We're, not, we're just going to stop talking about crypto because it's like so boring. No, I'm kidding. Uh, we love crypto here. We'll, we'll, we'll keep talking about crypto. But every once in a bear while. market roundup, pod, Sante. <laughs> we haven't even... Can, we go, can we go an entire pod really without saying the word... Oh, hold on. Oh, ch- challenge. Can we go an entire pod without saying bear market? That is the challenge. And whoever says it from now on will be like the swear jar. And if you say bear market, every time you say bear market, like you're going to have to shave your head. <laughs> or something which you haven't clearly so i told i told, anyways, I, told I told brian i said brian you you come on the pod i'm shaving my head so that's like saying yeah i'm gonna do this if uh, pre- the president shows up to the pod i mean come on man like be realistic here you need to shave you think your head. Brian's coming on the, no brian said he's coming on the pod a bunch please he's el presidente of crypto man in my book. El presidente. <laughs> all right brian if you hear this join us my friend brian come on the pod we want to hear from you all right i'm Thank too you. congested to keep going with this pod I, I gotta get some tea or something yeah
I think that's our time. Uh, that's our cue. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Short roundup here. If you have uh, anything that uh, we didn't talk about, you want us to talk about, drop us a comment, uh, tweet at us, uh, and we'll try to cover it next week. And of course, I, hopefully we'll have uh, Casey back on um, to talk about um, more of the stuff that's happening uh, in the Sound District of New York. See you, folks. Have a good weekend, everyone.